This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The New York Times has been one of the targets of President Donald Trump, who has repeatedly called the media the enemy of the people and accused them of being fake news. Media organizations have always had to defend themselves from various accusations of libel for as long as we've had a free press. Our next guest has fought many of these more recent battles for the New York Times. He is their deputy general counsel, David McCraw. And if that name sounds a bit familiar to you, it may be because of a letter he wrote back in 2016. That was when lawyers for then-President, or I should say then-candidate Trump, demanded the Times publish a retraction to a story about two women who accused him of touching them inappropriately. McCraw's response went viral. He became a hero of freedom of the press. He has worked for the paper since 2002 to, among other things, provide legal counsel to reporters, fight for freedom of information, and, yes, defend it from libel suits. David has published a new book about some of the more important legal issues he's worked on. His book is titled Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, and a pleasure to have him joining us right now. David, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, let's start with this last two years and, and what it has been like fighting these fights for, for press freedom and, and battling against libel for you uh, being associated with the Times. It's taken on many, many different flavors. If you, if you look at the attacks on the press, we've seen the president turn press conferences into reality TV where we're going to vote somebody off the island. And we've seen a ramp up of uh, leak investigations, which actually started during the Obama administration, but has continued. We've heard the statements about changing the laws of libel. But, but to me, the, 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 the biggest point is the one that you put your finger on it to begin with, and that is this constant refrain of fake news, enemy of the people, and staying on society, and similar sort of attacks. It's really a fight for the hearts and minds of, of American voters, American citizens. There was a poll that came out uh, while I was writing the book that showed 26% of the people who answered that poll thought the president should have the power to close press organizations that misbehave. That is very worrisome. So then how has all of this impacted the work in the newsroom? I would think it's probably even galvanized a lot of the reporters uh, in various newsrooms, the Times being one of them, but obviously in a, in a variety of other newsrooms, uh, bringing them even closer together in terms of their work and their reporting. I, I think that's right. I, I think that there has been an, an amazing resilience among uh, the American press corps, and I certainly have seen it at the New York Times. The point I was making earlier is that, that much of this doesn't have to do with the law per se. It's not really that, that we're seeing a lot of libel suits suddenly spike up. That's not what we're seeing. We are seeing some uh, attacks on sources and an attempt to, to pursue leak investigations. That's, that has a chilling effect. But much of it is, is, is really about speaking out at this point. And I, I feel that in my role as a lawyer for the Times, one of the things I can do at a time like this is is be out in front of this issue, talking about the importance of the, importance of the First Amendment. Our publisher has done the same thing. Our, our publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, has met with uh, President Trump on, on two occasions and raised the, these very issues. The concern is is both that there's going to be an, a delegitimizing of the press, that, that there's an attempt to, to dismiss the press, not because of any particular error or because there is 
a fact wrong, but just to to d- dismiss them as as not being credible. And it's also dangerous. The the yeah. the, the raising of these things uh, encourage people to take out their their anger on the press. And we're also at a time where seemingly there is more reporting than ever before from a variety of different uh, sources. Obviously, the newspaper industry, uh, but also uh, various different news outlets that are, that are out there, and more and more reporting uh, from people doing their own blogs. So there's more information out there than ever before. That's right. I, when I hear people say, oh, "Well, we don't know about this policy or that policy, or we didn't hear about that," it, it is rarely the case. <laughs> it is available someplace. People have to work at it sometimes to get it. And, and one of the concerns I have is that that um, we we really have to be at a time like this as citizens, no matter where we are, consumers, questioners, and making discerning judgments about what we're reading. I really wanted in this book, though, not to go to some abstract First Amendment theory. There's a lot of really good books for lawyers on that. I wanted this to be a book for the the, the general reader. I wanted to try to explain how the First Amendment worked day by day, how it, it, it affects the, the, the way we do our work, the way it empowers the way we do our work at the time. And I thought the best way to tell that kind of story was to actually use real things that had happened over about an 18-month period. Yeah. Can you take us inside of that and give us an example of how that process really plays out, you know, the connection that you have with the reporters, the, you know, the timing of, of making these decisions on, on various issues when a reporter is, is, is doing a story that obviously has information that, that will obviously draw a lot of attention in the, in the public. Very early in the book, I tell the story of how we came to publish a, a, a very important story from the campaign in October of 2016 about Donald Trump's taxes. We had gotten onto that story because somebody had anonymously sent three pages from Donald Trump's tax returns from uh, from 20 years earlier, from 1995. I was called on that, called by the reporter who received it shortly after she got it, and I was involved in that story as we went forward. I was absolutely convinced, still am convinced today, that the law protects us in publishing information that's truthful, that we have gotten without engaging in any wrongdoing. It's just sent to us. And it's in the public interest. And this story checked all those boxes. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to find out that <laughs> right after we published the story, um, questions started being raised about, well, does the First Amendment really protect this? And, and what was deeply concerning was those questions were being raised by journalists. That what I had thought was, was something that was deeply embedded in the knowledge of, of everybody in the industry, that when, when we get information that's true, we have a right to publish it. That's what the First Amendment is about. was not so. I was at a Yankee game the day after the story ran. Uh, Sue called me. Sue Craig called me on my phone and said, have you seen the Washington Post? I hadn't. It was a baseball game. And I, I, I went on my phone. I looked it up, and there was a column in the Post saying that we faced legal jeopardy by publishing it. And right. it concerned me that that we had done such a poor job, we writ largely, in explaining the First Amendment that even uh, those people who are in the industry were struggling with the idea of how the First Amendment worked. We're joined by David McCraw, who is the author of the book Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844 844- 
942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the other uh, stories that, that you tell uh, in the book uh, also surrounds President Trump's tax returns as well, which obviously have also been another topic of conversation. Yeah, it, it, we we have have been involved in, in, in a variety of stories that that deal with these topics of of the president's businesses and and the president's tax returns and so forth. And the, 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 in all of those, we have seen that um, lawyers have have written on behalf of the president and, and back in the time when he was a candidate and and attempted to to challenge our, our reporting on that. I, I find it disturbing in the sense that all of those stories have been deeply researched. They've been deeply right. researched, and, and, and the First Amendment's designed to have that very kind of reporting. When, when, the, when the Supreme Court decided Times versus Sullivan in 1964 and essentially revolutionized the, the law of libel, it was designed to prevent public officials and public figures from using the law to intimidate. And that's a lesson we need to keep learning. How how do how does this fight for press freedom and because there there are so many different levels of press in the country when you're talking about obviously the larger entities like yourself with the New York Times but obviously there are, are still quite a few smaller entities uh, in, in cities around the United States how does that 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 battle for press uh, press freedom. Uh, and fighting off libel accusations differ or is similar in both of those situations. We have a real crisis in journalism, and it's not the one the president's focused on. The real crisis in journalism is the failure of local news organizations. We have what the Columbia Journalism Review refers to as news deserts, places that have no effective news organ, news entity covering local government. And that is a, a... deeply disturbing trend for democracy. What it means is that many of the news organizations that are left, many of the small newspapers in in cities across this country, do not have the resources to stand up when they are threatened and when they are sued. And that that has had an enormous effect, I think, on the quality of the coverage, the depth of the coverage in those places. People like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, those big news organizations I think, have to stand up because we have the resources to do so, and we have to set an example. But it is deeply concerning that um, smaller news organizations, as well as bloggers, websites who are doing really good work covering uh, local issues, face these threats and find themselves being threatened, crushed by um, by demands that stories be retracted or the possibility they may get sued. There is also, uh, and for those that uh, that don't know, uh, reporters in many cases will rely on something called the Freedom of Information Act, which is also goes by FOIA. Uh, and, and how important uh, the those the the data that you're able to find from those requests ends up being in terms of a lot of these articles that are published. It's one of the topics I cover in, in the book, and 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 I. I, I tell the story of a case that we still have ongoing, which raises this strange and fascinating and only in our times issue, whether the president had declassified a, a, a top secret program by tweeting about it. Right. The case still goes on. FOIA has, has never been particularly effective 
but it's the one tool we have to get information from government. We believe very strongly in going after that information. Uh, among the mainstream news organizations, the Times far and away have brought has brought many more FOIA lawsuits challenging the government's denial of our reporters' request for information. We're going to continue to do that. Um, too often, especially as, as news organizations uh, have, have struggled financially, reporters and others just walk away when their request is denied by a bureaucrat. I don't think bureaucrats should be telling us how transparent government is. That's why I want to go to court, have judges make these decisions, and we've been been pushing those those cases very hard. Um, it could could FOIA be improved? It really could, <laughs> but it's not yeah. going to be in the short run. So so for now, our our role is to to press it, the agencies to give out information, and right. if they say no, go to court. How do you also have to deal with the issue of information that may be leaked from a source? Uh, because that obviously brings into question uh, one the information being brought forward, but two where that where that information is coming from in the first place. I find that that leak investigations have a particular chilling effect on people inside government who feel the need to provide information that gives a true picture of what's going on, even if their bosses don't like it, and. I understand that there is some legitimate secrecy that government needs to maintain, but so many leak investigations are not about protecting national security. They are about silencing the press. I, I write in the book about what I think is the most egregious example of <laughs> yeah, the, the, the misguided approach to investigations. That's the incident from last year when the Times published an op-ed by someone called Anonymous inside the government. A senior official writes about how there is a resistance within the administration and that uh, they are taking they're doing the best they can to head off bad public policy. The president responded to that by uh, asking the Justice Department to investigate on what basis could that possibly have been a crime? Somebody anonymously bringing to the attention of the American public problems within the government. That's one of the things we want to encourage. Um, it, it is a very difficult topic. I understand there are secrets, and sometimes leakers will cross the line. But far and away, most of the pursuit of leakers is really about trying to control information so that the American public only hears what the government wants it to hear. David McCraw, our guest, he is the author of the book Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You obviously talk a lot of, uh, about the inner workings of the media in dealing with politics, but you also, uh, we are also in a time where we have seen quite a, a, an amazing number of allegations of sexual harassment that have come forward. And in terms of the reporting in that area, how does that move forward in in making sure that all of the information is proper and you are not uh, you are you are doing the proper job that needs to be done in the reporting? I talk in the book about. The, the very beginning of, of the Times' involvement with that it was first with writing about uh, Bill O'Reilly ultimately moving on to, to Harvey Weinstein. And I think there was a, a huge breakthrough in, in how that reporting was done 
thanks to the good work of, of the reporters on that story. Too often these stories had been, he said, she said, that was kind of necessary because in most cases there were only two witnesses uh, to, 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 to these events. And the, and the thing that we really pressed for was to try to get beyond that. And I think we did that in, in, in a powerful way. Now, legally, one of the things that, that I have long been pushing for, and I thought our reporters on these stories did an incredible job of this, was can we find evidence that gives some uh, corroboration to what's being said? At the time these happened, did the, the person making these accusations talk to a friend, a family member, an agent, somebody in HR? Because knowing that there is a contempt, contemporaneous report helps us feel sure that we got it right. The other thing is, is it was, that was true in both of those stories, both the O'Reilly and the Weinstein stories, was simply to get multiple accounts. That, again, gave us that sense that, wait a minute, all of these accounts couldn't be wrong. I think that, that the, the power of that was, was, was shown by the ripple effect that goes across so many industries after that. I started getting calls from lawyers as we went forward with that, whose clients were about to be uh, the subject of a story. And, and, and over and over again, I hear the same thing. My guy is not Harvey Weinstein. And it was this the lawyers didn't understand. Harvey Weinstein did not set the threshold. <laughs> you didn't have to be worse than Harvey Weinstein to be someone abusing power, right. and certainly not uh, worse than Harvey Weinstein to be a legitimate subject of news coverage. We're joined by David McCraw, who is the Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times, you're uh, talking about his book, Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So going back to something you mentioned a moment ago, uh, there is this concern uh, of this kind of general erosion of trust right now uh, with various elements of the media. And there's obviously been this division, even within the media, where you have certain elements perceived as one side of the political aisle and others perceived as other side of the political aisle. And I guess, I guess the question is, how how do we try and build that back up so we don't have that erosion of trust? I think there's a couple of things. One is, those of us in, in in news organizations have to own that that some of the problem we brought on ourselves. I was a, uh, doing a presentation with our executive editor Dean Backey the other day, and he talked about how we had spent many years being a little aloof, a little distant from our readers. We needed to know them better. We needed to understand what they wanted and needed better, and that that arrogance uh, occasionally popped up and, and sometimes hurt us. But I think in in the current environment. The, there are a couple things that have to happen. It depends on where we stand in any given news organization. Reporters need to continue to do exactly what they're doing, and that is doing everything in their power to get the stories right. This is not a time when any kind of mistake is, is going to be overlooked, and journalism is an art. It's not a science, so sometimes we're going to get it wrong. If we do, we need to correct, but that honest approach to journalism is ultimately the one thing we have to offer, and I, you know, I'm going to be optimistic. I believe it's going to work in, in the long term. Um, the other thing, though, is, is, is someone is in my position needs to be speaking out about um, the need to, for a free press and the need for 
ha- uh, for having an independent press. It's also important that, and I hope my book does this, that people understand how much work goes into journalism to get it right. Somebody right. from the Washington Post said, after reading my book, came to me and said, you know, I don't know whether this does anything about press law, but it really tells the story of how journalism gets done. And I think that's an important story for, for people to hear. The letter that obviously you penned to uh, President Trump's lawyers uh, obviously has drawn unbelievable attention. In, in terms of, of putting that that letter together, uh, you, I guess you're coming at it, you have to come at it from two perspectives. You have to come at it from the perspective of a lawyer where the potential of libel is being brought up, but you're also bringing it up from the perspective of the New York Times and, and the reporting that has been done by a variety of different uh, men and women at that publication. That's right. Most of the letters I receive from lawyers are good faith attempts to raise an issue with me and with the paper. Somebody's been in the paper, his lawyer writes and says, this is wrong or that's wrong. Those sort of, that, that sort of letter, I, I answer <laughs> in the way I think is appropriate, which is we get on the phone, we exchange letters, we talk through it. I try to find out whether the Times has something wrong. If we do, we'll correct it. I, I put in a different category the letters that come in threatening lawsuits from the Harvey Weinsteins, the Donald Trumps, the National Football Leagues of the world. They inevitably release their letters to the public. And it is, in fact, a, a bit of political theater more yeah. than it is law. And when I write, I have to do both things. I have to give a legal response, which explains what our response is going to be in court if they choose to to sue. But I also want to make sure that we have stood up for our journalism and our our right to publish and do so in a a public and and pointed way if necessary. I have about 45 seconds left, and I wanted to touch on the the afterword of the book where you talk about the First Amendment. How strong is the First Amendment in this day and age? I think the First Amendment remains strong. Clarence Thomas has said that we should go back and take another look at at, – that the court should take a look at at Times versus Sullivan that was wrongly decided. I don't know any serious person in this country that's running around saying, well, you know, the one problem that's facing this country is rich guys can't win libel suits often enough. Right. So I'm confident that we're going to – we're going to – the law is going to stand up. The most important thing is to have people stand up for an independent press. They don't have to love it. They don't have to agree with everything. We're going to make mistakes, and they should call those to our attention. But to stand up for the concept of a free press is so important right now. David, thank you very much for your time today. All the best with the book. Look thank forward you to so much. Ta- Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thank you. David McCraw, the book is Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Uh, the book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.